0: Everything in our economies, everything in our lifestyle really does ultimately come from nature.
1: It's about where stuff comes from and what stuff is made
2: from. Whatever you buy, keep it in circulation. Don't throw it in the bin.
3: And once you switched and you're like building something sustainable, is super cool. Nothing can stop you. Like, uh, it's a new sexy. <laughs> Welcome to Fashion, Our Future, the podcast where we explore the solutions to make the fashion and luxury industry more sustainable and circular. My name is Lauriane Molière. I'm 31. I'm a French journalist, entrepreneur and fashion lover living in Paris. In this podcast, I went virtually all over the world to collect the words and knowledge of the people who are working behind the scenes to make change happen. Together, we'll go beyond the labels on our clothes to understand their impact on the environment and the game-changing solutions that will shape the future of fashion. So hop on, it's going to be an exciting journey that will empower you with concrete knowledge and hope for the future. We've spent the last three episodes learning about how much the fashion industry takes from the earth and the effect that it has on the environment. We now know that regenerative agriculture is a durable practice that can help the industry produce raw materials in the most respectful way for the planet and for biodiversity. We also know that we should keep our clothes in circulation and use the materials that are already on the market recycle and upcycle as much as possible, although we are still in the early days of that. In this episode, we're going to be thinking out of the box, as they say, looking at what technology and science have in store for the future of fashion. And I'm not talking about the metaverse here, but about raw materials made in the labs. Sounds intriguing, right?
2: All right, people, it's magic time
3: let me introduce you to a few people that are making what I call fashion magic. First, let's head to New York to meet with Susan Lee, the founder and CEO of Biofabricate. She is a pioneer in what we call biomaterials.
1: I'm Suzanne Lee, I'm the founder and the CEO of Biofabricate, and we're really a a company who is at the forefront of biomaterial innovation. And we work uh, across the globe with startups, brands, and investors who are all working to bring us a new generation of materials that are built with biology. If we think about where materials have come from traditionally, it's typically been either through agriculture, so thinking about a a crop like cotton growing in a field. It's been through animals, so materials like leather that come from the the skin or the hide of an animal, or it's been through petrochemicals. So all of the kind of the novel fibres of the 20th century, like polyester and nylon and acrylic, these were all from crude oil. And in the 21st century, we're in this new era where we can actually turn to biology to produce materials for us that use less land, less water, less energy, much less toxic chemistries. And so it's, it's an era of biomaterials.
3: For a long time, the scientific and fashion worlds completely ignored each other. And to be honest, it wasn't so obvious that they had things in common. So where did this idea of creating biomaterials come from?
1: 20 years ago, I was writing a book about the future of fashion. And I, you know, fashion is always concerned with next season. It's very near term. But I wanted, I I grew up as a child being a big fan of science fiction anyway. So I was always imagining what does the far future look like for fashion? What will things be made from? How else could we make things? So those were really kind of fascinating questions to me as a designer and then when I was researching my book, I wanted to think about what does fashion look like, not next season, but in 50 years time. And the way that we explore that is by speaking to scientists. And I, ha- I happened to meet a scientist in an art gallery, uh, pure coincidence, and we just got chatting and he was a biologist. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what fashion might look like in 50 years. And he was the person who said to me, well, rather than grow a crop in a field like cotton or kill an animal for its skin or use oil to make a chemical, we might use microbes to grow clothing. And that was an extraordinary conversation to have in 2002. And it started me on the path, which has been my life for the last 20 years, which is like coming together and realizing that if fashion wants to be produced and made from more sustainable materials, then actually we need to partner with science. And I ended up leaving the fashion industry and joining a biotech company here in New York. And I then spent five years in the lab with scientists, really getting deep into what it, really takes to grow a material for the fashion industry. And it's definitely not easy. When I first started out 20 years ago, certainly there was very little, if any, conversation in fashion around sustainability and the need for new material innovation. Um, and equally, the work that was going on in science around new potential new materials, no one was really thinking that fashion might be the right application for it. But what we've seen over the last 10 years is that a lot of companies now are being founded by people from the fashion or textile industry who are building teams, which is a mix of creatives And designers with scientists and engineers and it's together that you're able to fully understand you know where the challenges and opportunities are for the field so I don't see this as um, two camps with science over there and Mm. fashion over here what we've seen in the last 10 years is that those those two communities very much coming together and trying to find more effective ways of working together and understanding what the needs are of each of those uh, fields.
3: What a pioneer. I'm just so impressed by that innovation spirit. Aren't you? 20 years ago,
1: I was definitely seen as a freak in the fashion uh, the fashion community. My friends who were all in fashion, when I would start talking about bacteria and fungi and living organisms growing materials for fashion, it just sounded too weird. Uh, there was definitely a kind of ick factor where they were like, oh, you know, it sounds revolting. I can't, like, they couldn't imagine that that would be a thing. That sounds weird. The world has changed. You know, the the pressing environmental challenges that we have on this planet are forcing every industry to examine how can we have less impact on the planet. And if we're looking for solutions that address land use and greenhouse gas emissions and water and all of this, then... Actually, you, you you look to nature and you think, well, the natural world manages to make materials in such efficient ways. Surely there is learning here that we can, as humans, start to understand so that we can do it in the way that nature does it, rather than, than in the way that humankind has done it, which has been nothing more than exploitative and hugely damaging, you know? So we need to turn that around. And I think biomaterials biotechnology has the potential to help us do that. When I started the BioCouture project 20 years ago, that was nothing more than a creative uh, inspiration and a lot of excitement around the idea of growing clothing in a vat of liquid. I didn't imagine all of the consequences of that back then. But as the project developed, then it became clear, oh, if we grow materials like this, we can save water, we can save dyes, we we don't need the same amount of land. It could use waste resources. So it, it turned into something that had really significant sustainability implications in a super positive way, but it wasn't the incentive behind the project, because like I say, 20 years ago in fashion, no one was really talking about sustainability. They weren't thinking we needed new solutions back then. So it did kind of emerge over time. And obviously now
3: everyone's thinking about this.
0: Nobody moves until they make the switch.
3: At that point of the conversation, I wondered if biomaterials were actually being used in clothing we could wear right now, And that's when Suzanne served me with an outfit of the day, biomaterials edition, my friends. Actually, what
1: I'm wearing today is a T-shirt that is made by, it's a Japanese biotech company called Spiber. And they are brewing uh, fibres that are like silk protein fibres, But this T-shirt is a blend of cotton with a brewed protein. So just the way that we make beer or wine, it's fermented. But it's a fermented uh, protein that's spun into a yarn. And that yarn is in this T-shirt. And it makes the T-shirt feel like cashmere.
3: Fermented proteins that feel like cashmere? Give me more of that. Why didn't we do that before? And how come biomaterials are not yet flooding the market, replacing polyester, leather, or any other raw material?
1: It's going to take time for designers to learn what are the unique new properties of these materials and what do they lend themselves to. So I don't think overnight we are going to see anyone in this industry any one industry or any one material category be severely disrupted by biomaterials. It will be a gradual progression, a gradual introduction of new alternatives. There's a need for thoughtfulness as we create new biomaterials that we really think about the end of life as we design them You know, at the beginning of their life, because we don't want a whole new generation of materials that 20 years time turn turn into their own problems you know like we're we're currently dealing with a microfiber crisis all around the world we don't want to create another crisis from the biomaterials that we're uh, designing and producing today yeah of course. and so the best companies in the space are definitely mindful of that and obviously the brands like caring, who want to use them, are being very careful to make sure that everything is tested and there's real understanding around the benefits of those biomaterials.
3: Of course, I had to ask Suzanne for tips on where to find biomaterial products so I could see them with my own eyes and try them on ASAP.
1: In 2023, we're starting to see more and more of these materials come to market. So uh, Stella McCartney has been using the mycelium leathers uh, for a while. Gani have been using them. The North Face in Japan, Allbirds. You know, we're starting to see global brands in luxury, in sport, even automotive are really beginning to explore how these materials might show up in their products so yeah i think it's not a fashion trend it's a long term shift in understanding where materials come from and what they can do what they mean for luxury what they mean for fashion and beyond
0: this is worldwide it is happening
3: um did you hear what i hear mycelium leather In case you don't know, mycelium is the vegetative body of fungi. I have to confess that I have a bit of a fungi obsession because, yes, I too watch The Last of Us. So I had to ask her more about that. There's a
1: huge number of innovators who are looking to find alternatives to animal leather. So there are many different ways of creating something that... Is like a sheet material that you could use for shoes or handbags or clothing. And one way that you might have heard is by using mushrooms, but not the mushroom that you buy in the supermarket, but actually the structure of the mushroom that lives underground, under the forest floor. And that's called mycelium. And so there is a whole new category of materials which are grown using fungi and they can create these amazing sheet materials that could go into something like a handbag and they're again they're not an animal they're not a plant it's a fungi and it can be made to look like an animal leather but it definitely doesn't feel
3: or perform in quite the same way. That is just fantastic. Let me tell you that our fungi investigation does not stop here. Let's head to Italy to meet with Maurizio Montalti, who is the co-founder and, well, chief mycelium officer of Mogu, a company focused on industrial scale-up of mycelium-based materials. How does it all work? Let's ask Maurizio.
0: Mycelium is everywhere. Is everywhere you step. Is everywhere you are. Is in the air you breathe. In fact, in the form of spores, uh, there is an estimated five millions plus species out there, of which we know very little. Uh, and uh, so fungi yeah. are everywhere. So if you would like just to find a fungus, uh, you need to know your tools. But you can just go in a forest uh, and uh, try and eventually isolate it from a piece of soil, rather than from a fruiting body, a mushroom on a tree and eventually derive a culture of such fungus on a support, on a nutritive support in a lab.
3: Quick note, at Magu, they use the waste from other industries like agriculture or the textile industry to feed the mycelium. What's more circular than that?
0: It grows for a certain amount of time in order to derive certain quality of the raw material. And at that point, after several weeks, We harvest our material by simply separating it from its nutrients. It's a very easy process. And once we are at this stage, we we clean it out a little bit and we secate it, we dry it in order to actually remove any kind of biological activity. So at that moment, the material is inert. It's a raw material, it's dried. And at that point, it goes through downstream transformation where we subject the material to a series of steps uh, that uh, are helping to uh, remove unwanted parts, uh, add perhaps some features that the raw material doesn't have, add color, add texture, add a certain type of lightness according again to customer specification, in order to come to a finished material that is very stable, extremely long-lasting, of quality, uh, and particularly having embedding uh, what I call it an experiential uh, value that is unique uh, to itself.
3: At this point, I wanted to know if mycelium leather could replace animal-derived leather.
0: Efea materials, so-called mycelium leather, but we like to call them effea, are a class of materials on their own. They are not conceived as a replacement as a substitution of existing materials. They are not they are competing with existing traditional materials, but they are complementary. So this just to highlight that we are not here fighting uh, the, the actual leather uh, van chain, which has its own problems that must be tackled. But uh, we are here actually to add more to the, the offering.
3: It's an option.
0: It's interesting because when you would handle our materials, and I hope everybody in the audience can do that very soon, you would just notice almost no difference to a traditional leather material simply because the haptics, the hand, the feel, the touch, the smell, all the different sensorial feedbacks that one receives when handling and having experience of the material correspond very much to the ones that we are familiar with when it comes to animal-derived leather. That's a great idea. You're right.
3: I feel like this fungi frenzy is quite recent, but what does Maurizio think about it?
0: Back in the days, the interest uh, was relatively low. Actually, there was a lot of skepticism, on the contrary. Things have changed quite uh, uh, effectively along the past few years, let me say perhaps starting 2017, 2018, where in fact also I think the press certainly And the the global media have contributed to, let's say, diffuse a sensitivity and an interest about uh, the opportunities that uh, fungi happen to offer at many levels, starting from food to medicinal, uh, to different type of applications, really delivering something responsible without compromising performance and quality and aesthetics. I think it's exactly this, the key to the transition we are uh, witnessing these days as society and uh, as industries, uh, the fact of going beyond just storytelling and narratives that are often used as tools for dissemination and for attracting attention and effectively, feasibly feasibly demonstrate in the market that these types of solutions can effectively be uh, uptaken by major players in uh, actually very, very... uh, ambitious and complex industries such as high-end luxury fashion.
3: I've seen that mycelium leather on many runways this past fashion week, so I wanted to ask Moridio what's next for Mogu.
0: Today, of course, uh, uh, we feel very privileged about the fact of having uh, a lot of uh, audience, uh, let's say, at the door in terms of uh, possible customers. And it's our interest, of course, to expand our customer base. But we need to be very attentive uh, in terms of the players that uh, we decide to effectively work with or not. At the current stage, where we still do not have... Uh, an infinite production capacity. We today have limited volumes, and therefore we are in the position of choosing attentively uh, who we dedicate our volumes to. Certainly, such choice is based on uh, a good match uh, related also to the values that characterize a certain project and its own trajectory. Considering the players out there, our big advantage uh, uh, and something we are particularly proud of is, uh, has been and is still our capacity to have having developed the material that is rather consistent in terms of repeatability and therefore industrialization. But also that it is rather homogeneous when it comes uh, to its uh, embedded properties such as density, color, and its capacity to react uh, uh, properly along processes of downstream transformation, so basically the analogy to tanning when it comes to to leather. And that is uh, very much today something constituting our competitive advantage and that's what uh, uh, Kering and therefore Balenciaga uh, happened to appreciate very much, seeing that uh, what we were talking about was not just, uh, um, let's say, a, a perspective opportunity perhaps placed, placed in a far-fetched future, but an effective, viable reality already at that moment.
3: I think mycelium might be my new favorite word, and material. As Moritzo said, animal-derived leather has its own challenges. How about I introduce you to a startup that tackles just that? Let's transport ourselves to San Francisco, the holy land of tech. We will be meeting with Ingvar Helgesen, co-founder and CEO of Vitro Labs, where they are developing lab-grown leather. Yes, that's a thing.
2: My name is Ingvar. I'm the uh, co founder and CEO of Vitro Labs. So, Vitro Labs is a company working in uh, the broader field of a field that is called cellular agriculture. And um, what we do here at Vitro Labs, we are replacing leather with the lab grown material um, that we grow from animal cells. And uh, essentially, we replicate the hide of the animal, so the skin of the animal, uh, without harming the animal while being much better for the environment from a sustainability standpoint. And we then uh, work with companies like Kering on um, on tanning and finishing and product development to create the leather that people know and love, but without sacrificing animals, without killing animals, without using the uh, industrial animal agriculture industry. And um, so it's really what we're doing. We're replacing the source of leather without replacing the material that we all know and love of leather. It feels like real leather. The hand feel is like real leather. Uh, As as one person that we've been working with on the product development, on the tanning and the finishing, came to us when uh, he uh, and and told us that, well, it has the nobility of leather. And that's something that people really look for. And I'm also pleased to to say that it has the scent of leather, the scent that we all know and love around leather. So, So it has the characteristics of leather because, well, it is leather.
3: How do you do that? Don't worry. I've asked
2: Invar we take a harmless biopsy from an animal and what is a biopsy it's a uh, it's a small collection of skin cells so uh, imagine something that is maybe half the size of my small uh, small fingernail here and uh, we take uh, a sample of the of the skin of the cow we then bring those cells into our labs and we cultivate those cells and expand those cells allow them to divide like they would do in nature but uh, under controlled conditions so we can really allow them to multiply in a a greater fashion than they would do in nature. And we then use those skin cells to recreate the skin of the animal in our labs.
3: Interesting fact. This technology was originally invented 35 years ago for regenerative medicine. It was used to regrow, repair, or replace damaged or diseased cells, organs, or tissues. For the first time, this same technology is now in the process of being industrialized by Vitrolabs to create lab-grown leather.
2: The method that we're using now, um, we kind of went back to the roots of tissue engineering, the field of tissue engineering, and we implemented some things that have been tried and tested in the industry at at you know at an academic scale or at a, at a, at a very kind of low R and D scale. And um, the challenges that we're going through, and the interesting part of our work is taking a process that has been done in research and academia for, for 30 years and industrializing it. Uh, and that's something that has never been done before. So it's, uh, there are multiple multiple challenges uh, that, we've been, that we've been running through, but um, so far, we're, things are working out.
3: Just as Suzanne told us, when science meets fashion, it's just, wow. It feels like a futuristic movie. Well, guess how Ingvar actually came up with the idea of creating lab-grown leather.
2: I'm a sci-fi fan. I've watched uh, movies like Blade Runner multiple times, uh, probably too many times. And the idea really came from that movie where Harrison Ford he finds a snake skin scale and there's a, there's a barcode on the snake skin scale and then he finds out where the snake skin scale or where the snake was uh, was grown. And it was grown in a lab somewhere in the movie and uh, and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool if you could really replicate the materials that we're using whether it's fur or leather with something that is created in a lab? Because then you get around the ethical implications. And of course, what what I learned much more about later on was the fact that there is of course a significant environmental impact of uh, traditional leather.
3: Here is how he sees the future of traditional leather versus lab-grown.
2: Leather is a co-product of the of the meat industry, and uh, we are seeing already challenges of of re- the industrial animal agriculture industry, and uh, of course the. Negative, the downsides of that industry in terms of environmental impact, in terms of deforestation, crashing the biodiversity, and a whole bunch of other problems that that arise around it. And um, so I do see that at some point it will, with where the climate is going, is going to be too expensive to rear cows or to rear chickens, um, because of course water shortages that are already happening across Europe, across the U.S., um, and um, and all of those things will lead to more expensive products coming out from uh, the industrial animal agriculture industry. And so finding ways to recreate the things that we already use so people don't have to compromise on the quality. And uh, for leather, they don't have to compromise on the materials that they already know and love. So uh, those things will start coming into the market over the next few years. And uh, and I think slowly we'll start taking over because, again, these are clean processes. These are scalable processes. These are more environmentally friendly processes. And uh, at some point, they will be cheaper to buy than traditional animal agriculture products. It was quite a journey to kind of see, is this idea just a fun idea, or will this become an industry at some point? And... um, Really, what we've seen now is there is an industry around cellular agriculture that is rising and, um, and has been ongoing for, since around 2015. And multiple companies are trying to solve multiple problems using a similar technology.
3: All of this seems incredible, but remember what Apov told us in the second episode? We need to be realistic and talk the financial language. So, what's the price of lab grown leather?
2: Of course we want this to be accessible. We are starting in the luxury industry because again, you know if we have very limited output and any technology that is coming from research and development to industrialization, it will carry a premium in the beginning. Now we are making sure that it carries a smaller premium as we can at these early stages. We are working with uh, partners now that are happy to pay the price that it costs now, but but also making sure that yes, it is going to be competing with uh, traditional, quality leathers in the market in the medium term and competing with the mass market in the long term.
3: Even though it is slightly more expensive right now, in the long run Vitrolabs Leather aims to compete price-wise with traditional leather pricing in order to meet market needs on a larger scale. And they are not targeting just the fashion industry but also the car industry and basically every industry that uses animal leather. Rest yourselves, because the revolution is definitely coming, one cell at a time. <music> I am so surprised by all these new technologies that create the fabrics of the future. I don't know about you, but I'm still getting around the idea that I will soon be able to wear garments made out of mushrooms or lab-grown leather. I love the idea of science meeting fashion to create sustainable resources. And yes, yes, I hear you. It's taking time.
2: I don't understand why this is so difficult.
3: But if we've learned anything so far in this podcast, it's that nothing with longevity ever happened overnight. R&D takes time, industrialization takes time, and again, remember what Suzanne told us we need to make sure that the innovations of today will not be the problems of tomorrow. Just like what happened with synthetic fibers like polyester and nylon that we thought were game-changing innovation at the time, and they were, but now we're sort of paying the price for them. So while we wait for the next industrial revolution to leave the labs and meet the streets, we are not about to get lazy. As consumers, we can continue to educate ourselves about the latest innovations, we can demand that brands and the industry as a whole continue to work towards permanent change. Another thing we can do is change the way we consume fashion by buying secondhand, renting and rewearing our clothes. That's what we can do right now and without compromising on style. I think they want what is fashionable and chic. More on that in the next and final episode of this series. Wait, already? See you there.